This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. Working from home, I guess this is week eight, nine, maybe it's week ten. I've sort of lost track. For those of you who are also working from home, keep at it, keep with it. For those who are on the front lines in whatever capacity, healthcare, grocery, any capacity, and many other capacities are now becoming frontline as the country begins to reopen. All the best to you. Thank you for what you're doing. And for the rest of us, uh, be civil if you can, and be cautious and careful with your neighbors. The cliche is true. We're all in this together. So, what are we going to do this week? Well, we're going to take a bit of a break from coronavirus coverage and talk about something that has been, to be, to put it mildly, percolating. Some might say boiling on the edges of coronavirus coverage within the realm of Washington politics and law. That is the story about Mike Flynn, the first national security advisor to the Trump administration, and things surrounding not only his case, but the larger questions of the legitimacy of the investigation, not only around him, but the Trump campaign itself. I want to bring into the conversation my CBS colleague, Catherine Herridge. Catherine, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. I feel so excited to join the takeout. I've seen it on CBSN and I've listened to it, so I'm glad to be a participant at the table. Exactly. Uh, You're joining our hall of participants, as we like to say. We don't have a Hall of Fame at the takeout. We just have a Hall of Participants. So um, what I want to do first, Catherine, is um, get some names and some general descriptions on the record first. And I will tell you this, audience, I know there's a, a hazard to this episode. And here's the hazard. Some of you have not tuned into this story at all. And so you'll be playing a lot of catch up if you stick with us for the full hour. Some of you have paid incredibly close attention to every single development. And so some of this will seem a little didactic to you, a little boring, like get on with it, will you guys? So we're going to go through that hazard. But Catherine, to start, a couple of things. Um, What is Crossfire Hurricane? Well, Crossfire Hurricane is the FBI code name for the Bureau's investigation into not only Russian interference in the 2016 election, but more specifically, uh, alleged coordination or conspiracy between Trump campaign officials and Russian officials. And it began in July of 2016, and it really became the foundation for what many people know as the special counsel investigation into this alleged coordination. And there was another name for the Flynn investigation. What was well, that? Well, he was known as Crossfire Razor. Uh, that was a code name for him. There are others such as Crossfire Typhoon. That was George Papadopoulos. That was a Trump campaign advisor at one point. So Crossfire Razor, pardon me, was the name that was given to uh, General Michael Flynn, who joined the campaign in 2016 as a national security advisor for the campaign. And then after the election became the designated national security advisor and then operated during the transition as well. Who is Jeff Jensen? Jeff Jensen is a U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Missouri. 
he was tasked by the Attorney General William Barr earlier this year to do sort of a refresh and a review of the Flynn case. Uh, And among the issues that Jensen looked at is whether evidence that should have been provided to the defense was all provided to the defense by the prosecution. They call this exculpatory evidence, so evidence that would be helpful to the defense. And one of the reasons the Flynn case is really back in the news is that this U.S. Attorney Jeff Jensen uncovered evidence that was significant enough that based on his recommendation, Attorney General William Barr decided to go to the court here in Washington and move to dismiss the case. Who is John Durham? John Durham is also a U.S. attorney. He's based in Connecticut, and he has been tasked by the Attorney General William Barr to look into the origins of the FBI Russia probe in 2016 and whether it was properly predicated. And that's a fancy legal way of saying that they had good evidence to open an investigation that was looking at a presidential campaign. How long have you been working on this story? I've really been following this from from the beginning, 2016. Um, really, the, the Clinton email investigation, um, what we later came to understand was this overlap of the FBI also looking at um, Russian contact with campaign officials, and then all the way through to what became the special counsel investigation in 2017 after the firing of the FBI director, James Comey, by President Trump. Okay, so uh, we're going to do something here that's kind of an homage to Martin Scorsese (laughs) and Quentin Tarantino, okay? Because both of those directors like to start their movies in the middle and then retell the story on both sides of the middle. So we're going to do something to tell this story in the middle because I think it's something that we're going to focus on to the benefit of the audience that strikes both you and I. You had a very news-making interview with the Attorney General, William Barr, after this recommendation was to submit it to the court. We're going to pull the Flynn prosecution. And you asked him about what future things might happen as a result of this Durham investigation that you just talked about. So I want to play that soundbite because we're in the, this is the middle of the movie, folks, so pay attention. And we'll talk about it on the other side. Play that, Jamie. What are the consequences for these individuals? Well, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, we're in the middle of looking at all of this, uh, John Durham's investigation and, and uh, U.S. Attorney Jensen, I'm going to ask him to do some more uh, work on different items as well. And, and I'm going to wait till all the evidence is and I get their recommendations as to what they found and how serious it is. But if, you know, if we were to find uh, wrongdoing in the sense of any criminal act, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously we would, we would follow through on that. But again, uh, you know, just because something may even stink to high heaven and be, you know, appear everyone to be uh, bad, uh, we still have to apply the right standard and be convinced that uh, there's a violation of a criminal statute and that we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, I call this the middle of the movie, because there are a lot of things that we'll get into about the Flynn case that preceded this, and there'll be things that happen after this. That's a reference to John Durham. He's going to file a report. There might be indictments. But what you just heard the attorney general, to my ears, is very, very important, and to Catherine's. But I'm not going to speak for her. Catherine, why did you think what we just heard is so important? Well, we talked about this major after the interview, and that was one of the sections that jumped out at me because I felt the attorney general was, if he were a poker player, kind of tipping his hand a bit about what may be coming in the future. And I think in layman's terms, he was saying, just because you think what happened with the FBI and the Trump campaign was was bad, or maybe it was an abuse of power or all of these other things, that doesn't mean it reaches a criminal threshold. So in other words, we're not going to have mass indictments in this case. There may only be a handful of indictments in the end. But the attorney general's position, based on the interview, is that he'll only bring in tight indictments, or the U.S. attorney, John Durham, will only bring indictments if it crosses that criminal threshold for criminal activity, but even more specifically, that they can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. Which, in a case like this, is a high bar. Mm-hmm. It is a high bar. And, and you made a very good point when we talked about this, this earlier, which is when you kind of dial back to special counsel Robert Mueller, um, 
he did not find sufficient evidence um, to bring a criminal case that would uh, stand in a court of law targeting uh, or including members of, of the Trump campaign. But that's not to say that there was not bad activity or some of that activity, as Attorney General Bill Barr said, might have stunk to high heaven. So it's interesting to me how this is kind of playing out um, for sort of both sides on the political aisle. Right. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it, ladies and gentlemen, but things can stink and not be criminally prosecuted or prosecutable. We will get on the other side of this break and talk about some specifics of the Flynn case with our special guest, Catherine Herridge. I'm Major Garrett. You are listening to, watching, and as always, thoroughly enjoying The Takeout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Continuing our conversation about the Michael Flynn case and related matters with our special guest, my CBS colleague, Catherine Herridge. Catherine, let's clear something up because there will be those watching this and probably savagely banging on their social media posts already. Oh, Oh, God, you guys haven't said you worked at Fox together. That's true. It is. Hello. Yes, it is true. Your your office was right next to to my office. I remember your gym bag. That's one of my big uh, my big memories. (laughs) Um, some other things too, but the gym bags. Hey, come on, we can, we can, we can. I mean, I had a blog by the name of the, my office. Uh, the blog was called the Bourbon Room. My office was called the Bourbon Room, That's and that was correct. not an exaggeration. And, that was um, an actual thing. Even many years after you left, the Bourbon Room placard was still there. I don't know if it was crazy glue or what it was that got it on that door, but I, I saw people try and pry it off, but no one was successful. Yes, uh, I believe people tried to employ all sorts of drill bits, uh, ball-peen hammers, and the rest to uh, expunge that legacy. But nope, it's still there. So, uh, yes, we did work at Fox. And so I'll just ask you the question I'm frequently asked. How do you sleep with yourself having – how do you sleep at night having worked at Fox News? Well, I've worked at three places now in my career. I started at ABC – and then I went to Fox and then I came, was fortunate to come to CBS. And I worked in newspapers before I worked um, at ABC. And I have taken the same approach every single place that I've worked, which I've tried to be driven, always try to be driven by the facts and especially by the documents. I become known for my documents. I have documents here handy because I didn't want you to Do feel it. let down. That's right. Um, but you know, I, documents to me are so fabulous because it's, it's, a, it's a record of history. It's part of the historical record and it is what it is. And I find that whenever there's a declassification or a release, it just clarifies often many issues or gives you a new investigative thread to pursue. Right, pieces of paper often speak louder than partisan voices, and they cut through whatever partisan Mm -hmm. confusion and or allegation or defense has been mounted. Mm -hmm. So what do you tell people when they say to you, how did you get through working at Fox News or whatever? Look at every story, kids. Judge me by every story. What I've said everywhere I've ever worked. And that's that's what we do. That's what you do. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. Every story is available. You can look and and be pounded on and scrutinized for every single story. And as you well might remember, Catherine, when I was at Fox and John Kerry was the Democratic nominee, I did six weeks of stories on Swift Boats, Veterans for Truth. Never once was I criticized by the Kerry campaign for doing anything that was unethical, unfactual. I drove them crazy on that story, but never lost my relationship with anyone in the senior levels of that campaign or John Kerry himself, ever. Did he prefer I go away? Yes. But I did I go away? No, because it was a legit story, straight up. And legit stories sometimes make people angry, and they lob all sorts of accusations at you. I don't need to tell you that because you've recently lived through that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's, uh, um, you know what? To me, it just kind of washes over me. I just keep, keep rowing the boat and sticking to what I know. <laughs> Very good. So back to people who are significant in the story and helpful to understand parts of it. Who is Sally Yates? Sally Yates was a senior Justice Department official. And in this critical transition period, she was the acting attorney general. And and she matters because um, she was 
She was senior to FBI Director James Comey. And what we learned through our reporting is that she was also in the dark about this Flynn investigation until the sort of pivotal meeting at the White House in early January of 2017, about two weeks before the inauguration. So her name came up in your conversation with the attorney general and some people, even the Trump administration, found instant fault with Sally Yates. She was dismissed unceremoniously in the very earliest days of the Trump administration. But this is what the attorney general said about Sally Yates. Uh, Let's take a listen. Deputy Attorney General Yates, I've disagreed with her about a couple of things, but, you know, here uh, she upheld uh, the fine tradition of the Department of Justice. She said that the new administration has to be treated just like the Obama administration, and they should go and tell the White House about uh, about the, their findings. They And, uh, you know, Director Comey ran around that. What is the Attorney General driving at there, Catherine? The running around part. Well, I, I, I mean, I can't really speak for the attorney, attorney general, but my, my assessment of the comment is that he's pointing to what he believes was a pattern of behavior by the FBI director in 2016 and, and 2017. Um, FBI director James Comey um, took a lot of criticism for his decision to publicly discuss um, the evidence in the Clinton email case and that he would not recommend a prosecution in that case and doing so very publicly, which is not by the book um, and not informing his boss, then Attorney General Loretta Lynch. And it was that, um, I believe uh, the Inspector General Michael E. Horowitz used the word insubordination to describe his behavior during that time. And when Attorney General William Barr raised the issue of Sally Yates and that Director Comey had gone around her, I felt that he was trying to flag what he felt was a, a, a pattern or a theme or a thread, if you will, in 2016 and then also 2017. And I don't know whether you want to engage in this, but I've often thought how history might look different if there had been a different FBI director in 2016. Um, and, and 2017, because I, I'm not sure everyone stands back and recognizes what I think are two very big data points, which is that in 2016, we had both political campaigns under some type of FBI investigation. The Clinton campaign, it was the alleged mishandling of classified information through her personal server. And then for the Trump campaign, it was uh, alleged coordination with with Russian officials. And that to me is a mind blowing set of, of data. It is. And we, and it's sort of, as you said, either glossed over or missed this idea, this, this re, not this idea, this reality that the two nominees for the major parties were both simultaneously under FBI investigation. Mm-hmm. There is, there is sort of that period of overlap in the middle of, of, um, of uh, 20, 2016, the, if my memory serves me correctly, the, the Clinton email investigation closes. Crossfire Hurricane, which is the Trump-Russia investigation, begins right at the end of July. But then in October, Director Comey, uh, for a short period of time, reopens the Clinton email investigation. And uh, her supporters have, I, I, and I think you'll agree with me, always maintained that that act really tapped the brakes on any momentum she had going into the final days of the election. And at that time, in October of 2016, this is really um, almost at, at the height of the Russia probe because they're going to the National Security Court to get a surveillance warrant for this Trump campaign aide, Carter Page. So this is like this incredible sort of vortex that comes together in October. So uh, you're not old enough to remember this, Catherine, but I am. Uh, the ground. The, Gr- the Groucho Marx show uh, used to have this thing where if you said the magic word, uh, something would fall down. It would be a com- comedic moment. And a moment ago, you said a magic phrase that is rippling through the conversation about all this by the book. We have about a minute 30 before our next break. So walk us through a little bit of by the book and we'll pick up the threads of that on the other side of the break. OK, so um, the reason by the book is uh, back in the news. And I'm just going to go to my documents here is because of this email that's the Catherine Herridge move, ladies that and gentlemen. Is. Watch it closely. I, I like to wave papers, my critics say, for no apparent reason. But I, I, I bring the papers because I think that I try and post them on social media because people find it very instructive to read. And right. why the book matters is because it's a phrase used by the outgoing National Security Advisor, 
Susan Rice. Uh, she documents a meeting in early January at the White House where they're talking about Russian election interference and also the Flynn matter. And she talks about the president directing them to do things by the book. And those who um, support the past administration say they did things by the book, and this is evidence of that. And the critics of the last administration say that this is um, sort of a memo designed to sort of cover their tracks. And we'll let the listeners decide. Exactly. They allege that by the book is either code language or cover language to obscure what actually went on. And some of that, what actually went on, we will talk about on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout, our special guest, Catherine Harris. Stay with us. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, Catherine Herridge, our special guest. Uh, Catherine, as we continue this conversation about Michael Flynn-related matters, another key term I want you to help our audience understand, unmasking. What is that? Okay, so um, the U.S. intelligence agencies uh, can collect information on foreign targets. We'll use the Russian ambassador as an example. So they can collect their phone calls, uh, their text messages, uh, their emails, they can do physical surveillance on them, and they can use um, confidential sources to also gather information. If that information is pulled together into reporting, they have something called the minimization, because in the process of collecting the information, they often get details about American citizens or American companies. So they have to anon uh, minimize it or anonymize it using U.S. person one or company. So you don't know who it is, basically, um, because every American has certain protections when this intelligence collection is done. So unmasking is simply the process by the intelligence community of identifying that American citizen or that American company. And there are two thresholds that have to be reached. One, it's essential for understanding the intelligence that's been gathered, and it's essential for this government decision maker to have so that they can act on this intelligence. And does it matter if the gatherer of that information was the NSA, the National Security Agency, or the FBI? Oh, I don't want to give you bad information. It's, it's, a, little, it's a little complicated, but the, the rules are basically the same, is that a U.S. citizen has protections in terms of minimizing their identity. Um, it can take place, the sort of unmasking at different steps of the process. And you have uncovered recently a document that listed some names related to either unmasking or minimization. Tell our audience about that. Okay, so um, Republicans on Capitol Hill have wanted to get the so-called unmasking list for a very long time. It's, it's a, a list that looks for the individuals who asked for intelligence reports to, be, uh, to have General Flynn identified in those intelligence reports. Now, to be, to be really clear here, when you're looking at an intelligence report, it doesn't say, oh, this could be General Flynn. It just has a person who is person one. So they asked for this reporting and it turned out to be General Flynn in the underlying uh, information. I also wanna be clear about another point. When you look at the records that have now been declassified, what it says is that these individuals met the threshold to have this American citizen, in this case, Flynn, identified, but it also makes the point that they can't say that just because this official asked for the unmasking or identification means that they ultimately received and read that information. So there is a little bit of a gap there. Just because they unmasked Flynn doesn't mean that they saw that intelligence at the end of the day. And does any of that, what you just described, imply criminal wrongdoing? or in any way suggest it? And I, I'm not trying to ask you to be sure. the prosecutor. No, no. I, I'm, I, I'm just I, trying to right. sort of say, as reporters often say, well, this looks right. mildly suspicious, highly suspicious. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, where, where does it fall? Based on the people you've talked to and the people who right. work around this world, because I know you know them much better than I, I do. I think there's several things to consider here. Um, one of the discussion points on this issue has been that unmasking is, is very commonplace. Um, it may be somewhat 
commonplace for very senior officials, but over the years I've gotten to know uh, people who are very senior operators within different agencies, including the CIA. And what they have told me consistently is that in their entire career, government career, 25 or 30 years, maybe they asked for less than two dozen people to be unmasked. It was that sort of rare for them um, to do so. Um, I know that hundreds of unmaskings, if not over a thousand, thousands are done um, every year, but you have to see that in the context of the, like the billions of communications that we're capturing for intelligence reporting. And I think it's important for folks at home who are listening as they make up their own mind about what happened here is I think timing matters. This is the transition period um, after the election. And in our interview with the attorney general, he made the argument uh, and you can either agree with it or you can disagree with it. That at that time, Michael Flynn was the incoming national security advisor and the attorney general said it would have been, uh, it would have been negligent not to be reaching out to government officials at that time to kind of pave the way and start the relationships. Um, but the FBI director, based on the documents that we've reviewed, uh, told the White House he, he felt the communications were unusual and the frequency of those communications were unusual and that they really warranted further examination. So one of the things I promised the audience is we would get to after the middle of the movie and a little bit around the middle <laughs> to the beginning. So let's talk a little bit about the beginning and some of the surveillance that occurred initially through what is known as the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance mm -hmm. Court, authorized under law by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Right. Go. Okay, so the FISA court, <laughs> the FISA court is um, a super secret national security court, and they give uh, the government, the FBI, uh, domestically, really, and I use this word in the truest sense, these awesome powers to collect intelligence. Uh, in this particular case, in October of 2016, about an American citizen, and the threshold is extremely high for the U.S. government to collect information on a U.S. citizen inside of this country for good reason. And part of the debate is whether the FBI really met that threshold in, in 2016. I've spoken to former FBI um, case agents, if you will, who've handled FISA, and I've asked them to look at the FISA in October 2016 for this former Trump campaign aide, Carter Page, and they've said to me what stands out to them is the, is the citing of media reporting um, in the FISA application, that they had never seen a FISA in, in the years that they had handled them that um, used media reports as, as part of what appeared to be part of the rationale because sections are, are still redacted. And um, you don't have to take my word for it. The Inspector General Michael E. Horowitz found uh, 17 significant errors or omissions in these FISA applications for Carter Page, there was the initial application and then three subsequent renewals. And then Inspector General Horowitz took it one step further and he broadened his review of the surveillance application process by the FBI. And they found more uh, systemic problems um, in the FBI's representations to the National Security Court. And, and the reason that I've always felt this is so important is number one, these are incredibly awesome powers that law enforcement needs in order to break up spy rings and disrupt terrorist plots. But for that very reason, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, I think you should care whether this high threshold for gathering intelligence on American inside the United States was met in 2016 and in 2017. And the Horowitz report mm -hmm. really brought to the surface some things that I gather from reading it, the FBI would have preferred the public not learn about, it seems. Well, I, I um, what would the phrase, um, you know, sometimes you don't want to see people to see how the sausage is made or something like that. Right, right. You know, right. I mean, again, I don't want to speak for the for the FBI, but what, what I would say is uh, re more recently, some of the footnotes from the Inspector General's report were declassified. And what the footnotes show is that there were multiple red flags about this so-called steel dossier, which um, was put together by an opposition research group. They originally worked for Republicans and then sort of the work was taken over by, by Democrats. And the FBI can continue to use that document in their applications to the national security 
court. And I asked the attorney general in our interview how he thought that could happen because these are smart people. <laughs> these right. are very smart right. people and they've got a lot of experience. And I think the phrase he used was um, they really had sort of an, an outcome or a view in mind. And this caused them to sort of um, sideline information that was in conflict with sort of the way that they were driving. He said it more eloquently than I've just said it, but it's sort of a, it's like a confirmation bias. They were, they were looking at the information through a very certain lens. And that can be dangerous in law enforcement. It can be dangerous mm-hmm. in journalism. It can be dangerous in yes, medicine. It's, uh, it's not thing. something that has escaped other human beings in their work. But when it happens and at this magnitude, we want to talk about it. We'll continue this very conversation with our special guest, Catherine Herridge. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to my work from home studio. Like I said at the top, day week eight, week nine, week 10, I've completely lost track. But it's the work at home studio and here we are. However you are getting the show, podcast, radio, CBSN, thanks for joining us. Our special guest, my good friend and CBS News colleague, Catherine Herridge, talking about Michael Flynn and attendant matters, of which there are many. So uh, we left our conversation before the break, Catherine, talking about whether or not there was a goal in which law enforcement was seeking to bring, even though maybe the evidence behind it wasn't uh, as solid as it should have been. And that's an ongoing question. And I'm not here to answer it, and neither are you. We're just here to talk about what we know and what facts and documents tell us. But you asked the Attorney General something about the Flynn case. And for those who don't remember, Michael Flynn pled guilty to lying to the FBI And that was a case brought to fruition through the prosecutorial process. And then the Justice Department, that's where our conversation began in this episode, decided to withdraw that. But you asked the Attorney General something specific about something that you and others have come across in some of the notes that have recently come to the surface. Jamie, play that soundbite, which includes Catherine's question and the Attorney General's answer. In addition to those records, there are handwritten notes from January 24, 2017. This was the day of Michael Flynn's interview. And the writer states, what is our goal, truth, admission, or to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired? Is that a routine, by-the-book conversation between senior FBI officials? Well, as, as many people point out, you know, it's not unusual in the course of a bona fide investigation, when you're doing a criminal investigation uh, or a, uh, a counterintelligence investigation that has a basis, uh, it's not unusual to have an interview with someone and, and expecting that they might lie. But here's what's different here is that there was no underlying investigation that was legitimate. And the whole exercise was just about creating the lie. Catherine, that strikes me as important on two levels. One, the attorney general's judgment about the underlying legitimacy of the investigation itself. And two, you can hear in his own words at the very top saying, if it's a legit investigation, hardball tactics can and should be used. Yeah, the um, the attorney general is talking about the fact that this U.S. attorney, Jeffrey Jensen, turned up new records that showed that in late December, early January 2017, the FBI was getting ready to close its investigation on Crossfire Razor, who was General Flynn. They had not found um, derogatory information, and the FBI director's call was to close it. But then at the 11th hour, what the transcripts and other documents show is that they elected to keep it open because they had come across his phone calls with the Russians. More specifically, Comey told congressional investigators that the FBI and the intelligence community were trying to understand why the Russians did not react when the Obama administration uh, expelled uh, members of their diplomatic corps and then also imposed sanctions. And according to the transcript, Comey said this is how they, they turned up the calls with Flynn and they were trying to understand whether he had guided them in, in a certain direction or not. 
So they left open this, this counterintelligence investigation, and it was under that investigation um, that he was, he was interviewed uh, January 24th. And the attorney general's position is that it was not a, a legitimate investigation at that time. They had prepared to close it. And his position, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but his position is that it was left open to lay a trap for General Flynn over questioning him about his conversation with, with the Russians. And I just as sort of a final point here, if I could, you know, General Flynn is like a lightning rod here in 2016 and 2017, whether it's the locker up chanting at, at the mm-hmm. rallies. I mean, he's not someone who's, who's in the background. He's talking with the Russians. He's tar- talking with Turkish officials. He's got all of this lobbying going on. He doesn't, now we know that he was not meeting the standard under what's something called FARA. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a, I don't want to say a mixed picture, but it's a loaded picture. Flynn is a complex right. character in this, and he really is a lightning rod for, for both parties in 2016 and 2017. And because this is my show, I can do this. See this, folks? It's my book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride. We did a whole show about it. You can look it up. But if you want to know what situation Mike Flynn was in with the incoming president of the United States, before much of this happened, go to pages 71 through 73 of this very book, which describes that he was already in hot water with President-elect Trump, in part because of the way his son was operating around Washington, D.C., and the things he was saying on his behalf and what role he might be playing, and that he was on the payroll of the transition, and he was getting paid, and that there was some very incautious replication of things about Pizzagate in Washington. Look it up. And that infuriated the president, and it undermined his confidence in Mike Flynn before many of these things. There's this elaborate process going on to deify Mike Flynn as this someone untouchable, mm-hmm. That's what I'm fa- to get at. faithful, yeah. beautiful, untouchable, glossy, golden public servant. He did a lot of good things. He was head of Defense Intelligence Agency. But there is a much more to Catherine's point, complex orientation about what he did, what his son was saying, other activities that raised concerns. That doesn't legitimize all of this, but you can't look at Michael Flynn and say, oh, my God, he is the greatest thing ever, untouchable, unvarnished in any respect, and be a credible conversationalist in this matter. Um, we got an hour, a minute and 45 seconds. Uh, what do the documents tell us about Susan Rice or Joe Biden? The, the unmasking documents tell us uh, that they requested that with with some intelligence reporting to have this American citizen identified and that American citizen was um, Michael Flynn. And um, the unmasking documents focus on the transition period. It's November to January. You know, what we don't know is how widespread the unmasking was prior to November. And that raises the question, Republicans say that the unmasking amounts to spying. And Democrats say that the unmasking was judicious and warranted because of the frequency of these communications. Right. The common thread is both sides willing to believe the worst about each other. Yeah. It seems to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's something that I think makes all of this all the more difficult for the public to synthesize and come to a conclusion about which brings us back to one of the early comments you made. Uh, and I want you to do your move one more time. <laughs> the Catherine Herridge move, folks. Come on. Here we go. Three I, times I, in one show. There I we just, go. There's just, the documents. Well, I, I, get the, I, I mean, I was just looking at the unmasking documents. Uh, I actually don't see her on this list. So I may have misspoken there. It's Samantha Power, James Clapper, then a number of other officials. And then um, Comey, the FBI director, and then also Doug Lute. White House, White House, and then it is Dennis McDonough, uh, DNI officials, CIA, and then Joe Biden. So I take that that back. She doesn't appear to be on this list from um, the transition period. That's why documents matter, ladies and gentlemen, because they they clarify and establish and they help us separate assertions, lines of defense from what is actually on a piece of paper that that we can all agree carries weight. And that's why Catherine Herridge has been our special guest. For those of us in Radio Land, we'll see you next week. For those of you watching on CBSN, stay tuned for and on Radio Land, go try to find the takeout outtake especial because that's coming up.
CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to The Takeout Outtake Especial, our special guest, my friend and CBS colleague, Catherine Herridge. Catherine, how long have you been at this work? Well, I want to say my first job uh, as a journalist was with a little sort of uh, local neighborhood newspaper in Toronto, where I grew up, called The Uptowner. And I volunteered in the summer. This was in high school. And then my first job working at a newspaper was the Globe and Mail uh, in college. And then my first job was in 1987. And I started as a desk assistant at ABC in London, which is a job where I learned how to do everything I didn't learn to do in college, which was faxing, making coffee, filling the toner (laughs) in the coffee machine, delivering your... I mean, this is, you know, but this is how you start, right? I think a great way to start. Right, right. Right. And uh, it's worth reminding those in our audience who don't remember the halcyon days of network news. Uh, in the mid 80s, uh, the three network news broadcasts commanded much larger audiences and a much larger podium of authority in yeah. American journalism. Yes, I can't remember what the numbers were, but you're right. It was, you know, 30, 40 million people, I think, at that time. Easily. Oh, easily, yeah. easily. In the mid in the mid to late eighties, the three broadcast network news shows would pull together an audience anywhere from fifty five to sixty million in a country of about two hundred and seventy million. So the reach was much greater, much much greater. Uh, and um, that would have been. Uh, do you remember who the anchor of uh, World was News Peter, Tonight was? That was, was, that Peter, uh, Jennings, that was Peter Jennings. Um, and in the and in the small world category, um, World News Tonight came through London. And uh, I was tasked with being the desk assistant for the show. And I was very nervous, you know, my photocopying would be in order and all of these things. And and, um, I was sent out to copy something and I said, I'm just going to go out and I'll be right back. And the whole Canadian thing like took off. And he said, oh my gosh, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from Canada. He goes, oh, me too. Where? And I said, I'm from Toronto. He goes, oh yeah, I'm from Toronto too. And it turned out that we had both he was uh, older than myself, but we had both skated at the same skating rink in Toronto, which was famous for all sorts of shenanigans. I won't get into all of that right now. But anyway, so it's a small world, and he was a tremendous anchor. Yes, and that glancing conversation rapidly made you the subject of virulent envy throughout the London Bureau, I'm sure, knowing that bureaus and uh, broadcast centers as I do. Uh, envy runs in uh, big doses uh, and limitless supplies, uh, but that's a digression. Well, we'll that's a, that's a topic for an entirely separate podcast. Uh, maybe someday I'll launch it. Um, so, uh, Catherine, tell the audience a little bit about your overall life outside of work. Wow. So uh, uh, I'm married to someone in the military. Uh, mm-hmm. Two children. Mm-hmm. They're uh, 14 and 15 now. Um, I did not have brothers growing up, so I was not prepared for how having boys was going to be a contact sport. And um, I remember going to the emergency room with one of them, which is very, very small, because you know the headbutting with little small children, like two or three? And mm-hmm. he hit me so hard, I really thought that he had broken my nose. I thought, oh, maybe this is my chance to get my nose fixed. No. <laughs> no. Right. But, but um, at the um, at the emergency room, the doctor told me this is the most common cause of broken noses in women in their sort of thirties is he- being headbutted by children. So, uh, yeah. So, there you go. Um, and I live there in Washington. Yeah. Excellent. Right. And how's the uh, whole uh, stay-at-home thing working for the um, four of you? You know, I think like a lot of families. Um, they're the struggles of the online schooling and where the boundaries um, are. But I think um, working at home has brought a lot of clarity in, in many ways because um, I get up in the morning, I try and go out running. I've been doing that for years. I used to run competitively in college and I just have this clarity about being so happy that I'm well and that I can be out just for a little period of time. And Mm -hmm. I never sort of, you know, sort of cherish that time um, in the, in the same, you know, in the same way. And I just, you know, you're fortunate to be working and for everyone to be well. So I don't sort of think too much about the conditions that I'm working in per se. Right. Because uh, let's just cut right to the chase for us in our world uh, and with our skill set, 
the transition has been much less difficult than it's been for so many other mm -hmm. Americans. That's, that's true. Mm -hmm. It's just a fact. And uh, to be in this business and to be able to do it and use technology and harness it and adapt our skills, though, in a different way, but still largely the same way, uh, is a great advantage and a great blessing. And I think about that every single day. Mm -hmm. So we have three threshold questions, Catherine. Every single guest has been asked them, and our audience <laughs> loves the answers because it tells them a little bit about themselves. So in oh, no boy. particular order, okay. uh, most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie, and uh, if you're indulging in music and you're okay. really enjoying it, what kind of artist or genre are you mo most likely? To okay, so are you, should I do them one at a time or just yeah. right? Yeah, one at right. a time. Okay, yeah. okay so, so reading. Um, I'm a very poor reader of novels um, and just larger books. I, I think in part, and this may be surprising to people, but when I was young, I had a terrible time reading and writing. I may be even a little dyslexic and I have never been a big reader of long things. The book, so it's not surprising to me that I do something which is, you know, document driven and I, you know, there's sort of like little nuggets of, of, of that. And of course I'm of a generation where I was much better at math and science, but girls didn't go into math and math. Right. And they weren't certainly not encouraged. That's right. So I think one of my favorite books though, was a book that we read in high school that was called the wars and it was by Timothy Finley and it's about Canadians in world war one. And my grandfather got me very interested in, in World War I. He um, was in the trenches and I never knew him. He died before I was born. But my father would say that when they went off to war, his brother was in the trench with him and um, died after the war in a gun accident, which was tragic. And then his mother died after that, really of a broken heart because both, you know, both boys right. had served and then came back. But anyway, he, he said the first year of being in the trenches, you were terrified every day that you were going to be killed. But after a year, it became a job and you just carried on. And then at the end of the war, we have a photo. It's a, a postcard they took of many of them, I think in Belgium. And it's rubble all around. But he had this huge smile on his face, which was unusual because he had a big gap in his teeth, which he was very self-conscious about. But, you know, he used to say of sort of that time in that picture that none of them ever thought they would survive the war, the First World War. Right. So, yeah. So this book, uh, The Wars by Timothy Finley, I would say is probably the, in sort of most personal and memorable to me. Excellent. Uh, All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? I still love that movie, No Way Out. I've seen that movie so great many movie. times. Great movie. That is such a great <laughs> movie. Kevin Costner. <laughs> with, yes, with Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman. Mm -hmm. and, Sean Young, right? Uh, Yes, Sean Young. And of course, now I live in Washington, right. so I know where all these places are. And the twist at the end with Yuri yes. is so fa fabulous, yes. right? And uh, I rewatched it uh, during during the lockdown with our with our oldest son, which was sort of, it was the first time I watched sort of an adult movie with him. So right. yeah. was, <laughs> anyway, so we get to the end, end of the movie and when the whole Yuri thing happens, he's like, no, <laughs> like, oh my god, that's like so crazy! Like, right. you know. yes. And so I think it's a, it's it's such a. I just think it's such a good. It movie is. It's see. a great movie for you. If you haven't seen it, folks, go find it. It's really, really good. Uh, and a period so definitely piece a period too. Piece. Of like the, the subway that you yeah. see portrayed isn't in Washington D.C. That's the one uh, thing I'll tell you. As uh, it's not a, <laughs> it's it's not a showstopper. It doesn't give anything away. They shot that cell somewhere else, but everything else in DC is totally legit, and it's a great movie. Uh, yeah. What's your what's your what's your music? Oh, you know, um, I think I, I want to say that um, I don't really have favorite music, but more recently, because our younger son got into drumming mm -hmm. like big time, that I really revisited sort of classic rock like Journey, White Snake. Um, <laughs> Van Halen, you know, um, Guns N' Roses. Like we kind of really got back into um, uh, all of that. And then uh, he got into rap and I took him to see um, this guy, Little Pump. I had no idea how bad the language was <laughs> with Little Pump until I got there. <laughs> it was really, I mean. Ears, he, ears I, were melting. and Oh, know. it was just, it was so, he sings a song, I think, Gucci Gang. I said, Peter, is there more to it than just Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang? I mean, and 
<laughs> no, there's not. So anyway, so I want to say I'm open. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm open minded in my um, musical taste, but I still love like the classic rock. Like mm-hmm. I still think Journey is like. Um, don't stop. I mean, some of those songs right. like "Don't Stop Believing." Right. I mean, these are yeah. you know terrific. Songs. They are. Yeah. Uh, are you in any way, shape, or form since you were born in Canada of the band? Of which? Sorry, sorry. The Do you, the ba- the band. It's no, called the band. No. Robbie Robertson. Oh, obviously not. <laughs> well, no. uh, I, I but... highly recommend it. I highly recommend the band. Uh, and uh, if you uh, want to drop a few dollars. Uh, for a great live concert, possibly the best okay. live concert ever recorded, get the last waltz. Michael uh, Martin Scorsese, whom I mentioned at the very beginning of the show, did a beautiful documentary of the band at their last concert in San Francisco. And the last waltz is the name of it. And it's some of the tightest, best music you'll okay. ever hear performed live. And Robbie Robertson uh, from Canada is right. uh, one of America's great songwriters. So there you go. Yeah. Catherine, it's been a pleasure. You've been a great sport. Uh, please tell your husband uh, that he is uh, now a mini star on CBSN or soon will be. And uh, we, 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 appreciate, we appreciate the conversation. And we, whenever we're back in the Bureau, I'll see you there. Thank you for having me. Be well. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.